From director Bradley Cooper comes Maestro, a towering love story that traces the lifelong relationship between conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein, and artist and actress Felicia Montalegre Cone Bernstein. Their story is brought to life on screen by Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan, whose performances have already earned them numerous accolades. For Bradley, who directed, co-wrote, co-produced, and acted in the film, Maestro is a culmination of six years of intense study and a labor of love. Not only of Leonard and Felicia, but of what it would take to share their story. Over that time, Bradley assembled a carefully curated group of artists to execute his vision. Today, we'll be hearing from the incredible people behind the scenes. Prosthetic makeup designer, Kazuhiro, production designer, Kevin Thompson, costume designer, Mark Bridges, and editor, Michelle Tesoro, to find out what it took to bring Maestro to life. For Academy Award-winning prosthetic makeup designer, Kazuhiro, signing on to Maestro felt like serendipity. Before I know Leonard Bernstein, I knew West Side Story and other music. And when I was 19, I just started special effects makeup as, a, as my work, my career. I watched a documentary on uh, Japanese TV. Of course, I, I'm from Japan and I was in Japan. So I was really inspired by him. And I really liked his face too, because I'm, I've been obsessed with the face since I was a kid. There was a time I thought, you know, I would like to work on a film about him someday. So that was 36 years ago. So this kind of a film was uh, something I was waiting for a long time because I love to do character makeup and uh, age makeup too, just to tell the story in the film to make it authentic. Bradley announced about this film about, you know, a maestro. And I was trying to connect with Bradley for a long time. And suddenly I got the text from Bradley. If I'm interested in working on this project, what happened was Bradley was working with Guillermo del Toro on the Nightmare Alley. And so Bradley was asked Guillermo who will be the best person for this project. And Guillermo said to Bradley, Kazu is the only one who, who can do it. So that's why Bradley contacted me. Like Kazu, Acclaimed production designer, Kevin Thompson, would also be working with Bradley for the very first time. Bradley was looking at, I think he had a short list of designers in New York that he was talking to. And while we were Zooming in our first meeting, we were really clicking and it was going really well. And then he mentioned that he really wanted authenticity and intimacy in this design. And he referenced the movie Birth, which was a movie that Jonathan Glazer directed in 2006 with Nicole Kidman and Lauren Bacall. He was talking about this apartment in Birth and how he really loved the way New York looked in this movie. And I said to him, well, I'm your guy. I designed Birth. <laughs> and he said, oh my God, are you kidding? I didn't realize that. I didn't put two and two together. And at that point, I think I kind of sold him on the right person to hire. There were a few department heads who had collaborated with Bradley previously, including two-time Academy Award-winning costume designer Mark Bridges. You know, working with 
Bradley as an actor in Silver Linings Playbook and Licorice Pizza. You know, he's just always very collaborative and open to what uh, you would bring to the table and how you saw how it might work. And very patient as far as the process that I go through, because he understands what the process he goes through and understands it's pretty much the same thing. So there was a great deal of trust already there. And he liked my work in some other films and, and asked me to come aboard. And I was thrilled to be able to work on something that took you from 1943 to 1989. And being able to try to use all my tools as a costume designer to tell that story. Emmy Award-winning editor Michelle Tesoro was recommended to Bradley by actor-director Sean Penn after she worked on his film, Flag Day. And and I edited it, and we finished in May of 2021. And he had screened the film for Bradley, who actually had looked at other versions of that film and had given Sean notes. And when he saw the final version, he asked about me, I guess. I wasn't in the room. I don't know. All I know is that our producer, John Palmer, on Flag Day had called me saying, would it be okay to give Mr. Cooper my phone number? It kind of felt a little like the cool boy wanted your phone number. <laughs> and then we, we connected via FaceTime and he asked if I would help him in doing a little project together, which at the time he wasn't shooting the film. He was doing camera tests and doing testing for the film. And I said, yes. Prosthetic makeup designer Kazu began his process by creating a life cast and 3D scan of Cooper's face, in addition to a full body 3D scan, which he used to develop his design. Bradley and Kazu spent endless hours testing different versions of Leonard until finally it was time for the first camera test. So Bradley told me, oh, we were going to do a film test at the Disney concert hall. Okay, you know, like usually that happens on the corner of the small studio just to set up the camera and lighting and, the, you know, film the actor in the makeup. He told me like a Paul Thomas Anderson is filming it and the Spielberg, Spielberg will come and uh, Gustav uh, Dadmel will be, you know, coaching me uh, to conduct. Okay, <laughs> that's a big deal. You know, like <laughs> I was really nervous because it's like a, that's added so many layers of, uh, <laughs> you know, thing to deal with. After several tests, Kazu and Bradley decided to create a hybrid of Leonard and Bradley's likenesses. Fewer prosthetics would allow for more movement and expression striking a key balance between aesthetics and practicality. Kazu's designs had to take Bradley through over four decades of the conductor's life, ranging from his mid-20s at the beginning of the film all the way into his 70s. To accomplish a youthful look, Kazu lowered Bradley's hairline with a wig, created a fuller upper lip, and lifted his jawline and eyes with tape. Aging Bradley presented its own unique set of challenges. Challenging part was when the last stage, it's really hard to do always because when people age, it's almost like a kind of shrinks down, you know, like a neck changes everything. His body shape is athletic. So I have to kind of figure out 
to balance out with the bodysuit, create the aged arm and the whole face. And then, so I would say that, that that was the trickiest part. Kazu also had to consider the physicality of Leonard's character when creating his designs. This was highly relevant when planning for the film's six-minute conducting sequence. One issue about prosthetic makeup is, you know, like when people are excited or running around outside, we get fresh, you know, like get red, but that doesn't show through the prosthetic. So, for example, at the Ely, uh, he's conducting. So basically, the reality was, I mean, uh, what happened was he was conducting over one hour straight. So he was sweating and also moving around all the time. So that day I painted more like extra red to make him look like a lady in the physical and uh, also put the sweat on him and uh, to create that look of it. That helped to give a life to the character. Once production began, Bradley would arrive six hours before the rest of the cast and crew to go through makeup and fully transform into Leonard. So he wanted the makeup to be done before the crew call so he can show up as a Lenny to be on set. So I could tell why I'm doing the makeup. Slowly he started to turn into Lenny, not like just outside, more like inside, because we had a costume area, like a changing area in the makeup trailer. And as soon as he changed and came out, his voice was Lenny and he looked like a Lenny. And that was a really exciting moment. Bradley was really amazing. He's really uh, open and honest and passionate about this project. He's kind of crazy like I am. You know, he's like a perfectionist and uh, we never stop to refine anything, even like uh, during the filming. Because he he came as a one package of a producer and director and actor and co-writer. And so he knew everything. So understood everything and uh, he was a uh, driving force for the everybody and because he he was the only person to ask any question and he has all answers it wasn't like a job it was more like a part of the life because he was open up and honest and even like i i told him like after three months into the pre-production i told him i feel like i knew you for 10 years because it was a strong connection and you know, like a mutual respect Around the time that Kazu was getting started on designing the prosthetics for Maestro, Bradley was in search of a production designer for the film. He enlisted Kevin Thompson, who had extensive experience telling stories set against the backdrop of New York City. Our early meetings were uh, quite often at Bradley's house instead of over Zoom because I live in New York about 10 blocks from him. And he was, of course, at that time, even you know, two years before, was already steeped in dialogue coaching and playing Lenny. So he would hold the meetings as Lenny, and Tim Monick, the dialogue coach, would sit in the corner and take notes uh, <laughs> and on, on how he, you know, what kind of uh, mistakes or correct things he was doing dialogue-wise. And he would, you know, he'd have a cigarette in his hand. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be lit, but he was already doing Lenny. And it was fascinating for me to meet with him in that way. That, that was probably, you know, a good percentage of our meetings the first couple months. It was wonderful because instead of talking specific details about set design, which he knows a lot and he has a great eye, he 
he talked to people conceptually about the love story and about the emotional content and the emotional core of the movie he wanted to make. So right from the beginning, we were talking abstractly about how he saw this as a continuous piece of music rather than pieces of film that were edited together. I really appreciated that he was talking to a designer in terms of filmmaking rather than logistic, tangible design elements. I thought that was a great sort of foundation to have for when we got into the details of each scene and what he wanted from each scene. Much of Maestro takes place within Leonard and Felicia's Manhattan and Connecticut residences, which Kevin and his team painstakingly recreated. In addition to the research Kevin did, he was able to get to know the couple's personal taste and style through their actual home in Fairfield, Connecticut, where a portion of the film was shot. It was a great benefit to have the cooperation of the family and the three children and getting into the house in Connecticut. Not only were they willing to assist in any way and answer questions and show, show things, but they also let us do what we needed to do without us having to worry about what they would think. So they gave us a lot of freedom and a lot of information. The first time I went to, to Fairfield uh, was with Bradley and we just walked through and sort of felt what it was like. It was very important with a film where you want to get intimate details about how they lived their domestic life and where they raised their children and where the family activities took place. It was uncannily untouched in a, in a certain way from when they lived there at the end of the 20th century. We curated elements in the house to make it period correct. We freshened the material on the sofa, for example, by recovering it, it was faded. We did a lot around the pool with the period pool furnishings. And Leonard's studio was out in the cottage in the, in the back by the barn, the small red building. And that had been turned into an apartment with a kitchen. Sort of had to reconstruct that and remake that studio in that room so that we could actually feel like we were in the actual place where he composed mass. And, and when he walked across the lawn, um, it was like where he would have walked to tell them that he was finished. And we were pinching ourselves that we were in the place where Lenny and Felicia actually raised their kids and had so many memories, and it was as though there were ghosts still there, and it felt, you felt the spirit of Lenny being there. I think it was really helpful for Bradley to have that. The Osborne apartment and mostly the details of the Dakota apartment were much easier to understand the flavor of what they should feel like after visiting the Fairfield family home and seeing how they lived there. Similar to the Fairfield house, he and I got access into the original apartment in the Dakota. Since you can't shoot there, we would have to build it. I was able to take photographs. I was able to get my team in. But most importantly, again, just the two of us sort of walking through the apartment and talking about the scenes that were going to play there and the importance of what each scene meant helped us sort of build it to the exact scale and feeling of the original apartment, but 
we could tweak the floor plan for camera. We could make it play better for the scenes, specifically the way he wanted to shoot them. One of the most impactful scenes that takes place in the Dakota apartment is the confrontation between Leonard and Felicia on Thanksgiving. As they hash out their frustrations, the infamous Snoopy float passes by the window. Darling? Mm. Oh. For a second, I thought <laughs> it was quite Say a what? stunt that you pulled. What? <laughs> that was quite a stunt that you pulled. What do you mean? Well, darling, you put the pillow outside and then buy sh- slippers and a toothpaste and a toothbrush, and I haven't seen you since. I understand you're angry with me. Jesus Christ. But, I mean, let's be reasonable. Yeah, there is a saying in Chile about never standing under a bird that's full of shit. And I've just been living under that fucking bird for so long. It's actually become comedic. I think that you're letting your sadness oh, get the stop be- it. Let me this at least finish. Let me finish me. what no. I'm going to say. No. I think no. you're letting your sadness get the better of you. This has nothing to do with me. That's- it's about you. Okay. So you should love it. That was their bedroom, and Bradley wanted the bedroom to have two windows so that it would feel like his side and her side a little bit. When he set up that wide master shot. We sat in the room, Bradley, myself, and the set decorator, Rena D'Angelo. We all talked about, like, in this specific shot, if the camera's going to be still for a long time and it's going to be wide, people are going to stare at every corner of the shot. So let's all be really happy with it. And we moved some things. We changed some art. We made it sort of casual on the window seat for her to sit there. It was really like we designed it on the day for that master shot, after we had built the room, of course, so that he could play around and see what he liked. In addition to all of the different spaces Kevin and his team needed to create, they also had to consider that the first segment of the film was shot in black and white. Bradley bravely committed to black and white film and the aspect ratio that was closer to a square early on. So we tested the film stock and we saw how different colors reacted to it and we tested fabrics and for instance some of the mid-tones all looked alike, some of the colors would go to black even though they were bright when they were in color. So we had to adjust our colors a little bit because we wanted to have contrast and texture. Again, this is a case where we worked closely with the wardrobe department and Mark Bridges with fabrics and upholstery and clothing and things like that. Costume designer Mark Bridges started his process by creating lookbooks, which laid out costume ideas for each beat of the script. After reviewing these with Bradley, he'd seek out prototype garments for the film. Just like Kevin mentioned, Mark also had to consider how shooting in black and white would affect designs. Oh, you know, when I'm designing a scene, uh, I, I think of how it looks as a whole, like when there is sort of the row party when he first meets Felicia or the luncheon that they have at Tanglewood. You know, you're, you're looking at each character and you're looking at 
the graphics of each character so that uh, in black and white, there's a very subtle, shrewd way to draw your eye or have the audience look where you want them to look. So I, I plan things like that. I bring my experience of working on the film, The Artist, which was in black and white and knowing that textures are very important, whether it be nubby wools or beading or the value of the leading actress in a sea of people. So that was all really useful. And then we were fortunate enough to have a lot of camera tests with our DP, Maddie Labatee, and be able to look at things and continue to refine it. Having an innate understanding of Leonard and Felicia's personal style during the different phases of their life was an essential part of Mark's process. A lot of the part of that research is just finding out who these people are and how they present themselves to the world. Or, you know, does it seem like he always wears a turtleneck when he's rehearsing because theaters are drafty? Or, you know, she's been well, you know, Felicia has looked well tailored since the 40s and continued to be as Mrs. Maestro right up to the time of her passing. You know, so you learn about the characters, and even though there may not necessarily be something that uh, is specific to use for something in the scene, you understand who they are and that they're a person of their time with a certain amount of means and prestige. And uh, then you're able to make sort of lovely choices about what would they wear, and you go on. You use your imagination and, and of course, collaborate with the actors about how, how do you feel about this? Does this seem to work for the outer skin of this inner life that you're creating? So all along, I'm bringing things to the table and Bradley is wrapping his mind around them for how he feels as an actor, but also as the director looking at the big picture. So that was really, really interesting. And I felt like it was a great collaboration. And, you know, I think it shows how successful it was as far as actor and designer and director. Um, Carrie, you know, I brought a lot of different prototypes too. You know, Felicia was a very chic woman at the end. You know, there's things like when we turn to color, she's wearing that ice blue dress. Well, we don't know the Felicia ever had a dress quite like that but you know after working on phantom thread which was all about couture you know you discover that sort of things with the least amount of seams are sort of most clever couture dresses in a way and so i wanted something for that party that seemed like she would wear that as mrs maestro there in 19 69 or 70, where we are. And, um, you know, I happened to find a prototype dress that I thought was very interesting, but it was white and it was, you know, 50 years old. So we, we remade that into that beautiful blue dress that is so striking when we turn to color. You're just, you're just constantly thinking about the script, thinking how we could represent scenes, putting your hands on 
ideas and then getting in a sort of laboratory room of a fitting room and doing the work with the actor. Mark also had the opportunity to visit the Bernsteins' home in Connecticut, where he received a tour from their eldest daughter, Jamie, and was even able to take a look at the clothes that were still hanging in Leonard and Felicia's closets. Jamie put out a couple of dresses that were typical of her mom to wear in the country. She pulled out some jackets of Lenny from the 80s. He pulled out a robe that he would wear to greet guests after performing. You know, he's very overheated and sweaty and things. And he would put on this robe. It was a very brightly colored Thai silk robe. And then he would receive guests backstage wherever he was. And so it was interesting to see that even down to his sort of casual wear, he was a showman. He was out there into the world and and very colorful in clothing and personality. We used one of Felicia's dresses in one scene for Carrie. We had also one of Lenny's terry cloth robes uh, that we used in the film, but those scenes didn't quite end up into the final thing, but it was really great to have a piece of his energy on the set too. I think we just had to sort of oxy-clean Felicia's dress a little bit, but it went right on Carrie. The robe went right on Bradley. And so it feels very meant to be. When it came time to begin post-production, editor Michelle Tesoro was well-prepared to weave together Maestro. Long before production began, she and Bradley had created a 30-minute proof-of-concept film to help them flesh out their approach. Well, those initial camera tests, you know, we found in terms of framing that for the conducting, the 133 seemed to be the better framing because there was a lot of arms up and just Bradley so tall and, you know, and then on a podium and, you know, you wanted as much room as you could possibly get in terms of the height of the frame. We tested shooting film in black and white video in black and white film in color the black and white film was just had had just an aura about it had a feeling about it and it really recalled a lot of you know you look at all these photographs of them and and even the murrow interview you know the actual tv interview and it it felt like it represented those times better other than looking gorgeous I mean, I was very impressed with Bradley, with his energy level, his passion for the subject matter, for the project. I mean, he was just inside and out of that story. And as an editor, it's really helpful to have somebody who really just knows what they want, just even down to the rhythms of the film. We worked really closely together, just even from the beginning of these tests before principal photography and throughout when we were editing the footage it was we were together looking at the footage deciding which shots to go to what order when to cut it was a lot of time together <laughs> it's interesting to look at the film now because i could look at a project and say oh i remember when i did this or i did that or he wanted to do this or that but i can't really look at the film and not see something that we didn't do together. 
it feels like it's its own being that two people created together. Michelle and Bradley's decisions in the editing room were also deeply informed by Leonard's extensive music catalog. The choices of the music were happening way before I even came aboard. But because they were written into the script and Bradley really had an idea of, of key cues that he wanted to be in the film, it gave us a guide. But I think design-wise, we always really wanted to to push the music forward whenever that was telling the story. And then you always kind of want to hand off when you want to be in the room and just feel like you're just with the two of them, for example, or just hearing the dialogue or not really hearing the dialogue, just maybe the cacophony of a setting to just feel the time and the place. And there's certainly, I think, when you go through the film, we don't really kind of mix sound design and music. It's really just either where we're with the music or we're, we're in the reality of the place. As we learn more about the dedication, attention to detail, and collaborative effort that went into Maestro, it's clear that the film required all of its department heads to pour themselves completely into the work. But just as apparent is what each contributor took away personally from the experience. We'll end today's episode by hearing some of these final thoughts, starting with costume designer Mark Bridges. When I'm making a film, I'm just trying to serve the piece and to make the most of each of the scenes. And you continue on, as I said before, one foot in front of the other. You know, little did I realize that this whole journey of creating this film and creating these designs would become the whole that it is. I'm just doing scenes and beats and moments and change three and change four. And then put together by Bradley in such a terrific way, it really became a story that worked. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I have to thank, of course, Bradley's incredible enthusiasm and leadership. I had the best staff in New York, I feel. They were incredible. You know, of course, Netflix support. I come away with just in awe of what can be done when all the stars align and ultimately very proud of the piece. I mean, I think I learned so much working with Bradley about performance. I think I will probably stay in shots a lot longer than I used to. Because I'm noticing things about the performance, this whole experience, even going and screening the film for all these different audiences, I've gotten to know some of the other craftspeople on the team and they're just so amazing. And like, I just, I feel like I'm like the new kid on the block and everyone has been working in this business at such a high level for 30 years or whatever. And they're just so happy to be there and passionate about their work. And I just think my takeaway is when you're a part of a crew that just loves each other, but loves their own work and loves the work itself, you really can make magic together. Bradley's involved in everything intimately. (laughs) Everybody's department. That's why it feels so solid, I think, is he really understood and could talk to me about what he wanted for the scenes. I just take a lot of joy away from it because it was honestly 
such a pleasure to go in every day and like hear these pieces of music being played and to see what we were doing. And it was just, it was a very joyful production, difficult and joyful. So I just take away a wonderful experience and I don't know how, how we're gonna get another one like that. <laughs> it was kind of a dream came to kind of moment. When, when we were young, something or someone put the fire in you uh, to, you know, like uh, inspire you to do something. And Bradley too, he wanted to do conducting when he was a kid. And our past crossed in the perfect timing. It was like a greatest gift I received from someone <laughs> in my entire life because it wasn't really a job. It was really lifetime experience. The story too, I really deeply could connect because especially if you have something passionate about, it's really hard to do both. We only have 24 hours a day and they have to figure out how to balance you know, everything and everybody. And that uh, kind of torment of the you know, artist have to go through. I worked with the uh, most amazing uh, department heads. Everybody was so amazing. I cannot ask anything more than that. <laughs> yeah, it was perfection. Maestro is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Thank you to Jenny Shagnon and Maddie Saf-Welsh for their contributions to this episode. Special thanks to Kazuhiro, Kevin Thompson, Mark Bridges, and Michelle Tesoro for making this episode possible. 